Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with women's basketball pioneer Liz Galloway McQuitter. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Liz Galloway McQuitter is a former professional WNBA player, a collegiate level head and assistant coach, and the current president of Legends of the Ball, Inc. Today, she'll discuss how our organization inspires youth to realize their potential, break barriers, become leaders of change, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have one of the original WBL players, Liz McQuitter. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Lewis. Glad to be here. Glad to have you, especially during this time as we approach the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which changed sort of the economic landscape and opportunity landscape for women in this country. So let's start off, Liz. Tell us the importance of Title IX and what it did, not just for women's sports, but for women in general. Well, Lewis, uh, you've heard a lot uh, about the 37 words, and those 37 words uh, opened doors. And not on any of those doors was athletics on there, but it has come to be synonymous with athletics. But it states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, denied the benefits of, or subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. With that, with those 37 words, women were able to get into colleges, uh, get into med school, law school, um, fight against sexual harassment. And yes, under activity, athletics slid under and sports began to grow exponentially. And it allowed women like myself to go to college on, a, on an athletic scholarship. But education was always at the forefront of what Title IX was going to do for us. So, so Liz, let, let's, let's just kind of drill down and get personal. So, you played basketball in high school, correct? Yes. I played in and, Texas. Yep. And if not for Title IX, would you have been able to go to college? Or how would you have figured that out? Not just play, play in college, but would you have been able to go to college? You know, Lewis, I was determined to go to college but I didn't know it would be a, it would have been a lot of loans. It would have been financial aid. Uh, it would have been help from family, friends. There was a school nurse who came to my mother and said, Edna, I want to make sure that Liz goes to college um, and people who are willing to help and support me. So sports became my vehicle as well as my teammates and friends and counterparts. Once uh, Title IX included athletic scholarships, that was our ticket. Wow. And tell me, did you realize that immediate impact on you at that particular time? Or was this something that over time you look back and said, what if? Absolutely not did not realize it because it came in 1972. We were in high school. 
and uh, planning on going to college, but did not know that we would be able to use our athletic ability, in my case, basketball, to earn a scholarship. So um, I went to Temple Junior College up the road from me, about 50 miles away. And my coach there is a Hall of Famer and a, and a basketball historian and told us about the history of the game before and what was going to be coming with Title IX, what she expected it to do for us and all the women after us. And then by the time I transferred to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in 1975, it was in full swing, and we became the first scholarship athletes, student, women's basketball players at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So it's it's wow. being in the right space, in the right place, in the right time. So, Liz, tell me about playing basketball in Sin City. <laughs> well, you know, of course, the Running Rebels. I know you're familiar with Jerry Tarkanian and the Running Rebels. Ironically, my head coach at UNLV was Jerry Tarkanian's assistant at Long Beach State before they came to UNLV, and he followed him over to Vegas, and there had been a women's team that just had walk-ons the year before. And so when Title IX was implemented, he took over the women's program. So we were right alongside our running rebel counterparts, but obviously they were very, very popular in, in Las Vegas. But uh, because we were new, because it was the first year, we received a lot of benefits. But then just like now, you can't really compare. I think because we went from nothing to something, we really looked at it as, you know, having arrived, so to speak. But it was, I mean, you could walk to a game and anybody would be in your gym. I can remember all the stars and entertainers. And uh, it was quite an experience for a little small town girl. And, and, and how did Vegas sort of take on uh, having a women's uh, team at that particular time? It was new. It was exciting. And we certainly had a fan base. Uh, I think all across the country, these women's teams were popping up. And one year later, in 1976, we had our first women's Olympic team, the first ever, uh, 1976. So with that, it just started to take off. Now you have women playing in high in college. The growth spurt is still the greatest that has occurred. And then shortly after that, the first Women's Professional Basketball League in 1978 was a result of that. And we ha we certainly had no idea that there was a Women's Pro League coming. We, we were just absorbing the fact that we could play in college. So it grew really, really quickly. So let's stay there for a minute. Let's tell us about this development of the this Women's Professional Basketball League. Whose idea was that? How did that come about to even to be a thing? Well, a gentleman by the name of Bill Byrne, who had uh, been involved with Canadian football and other pro leagues, believed after the Olympics that, the, that we were ready, that the world was ready, that the country was re ready for women's professional basketball. So he felt that it was a viable product, that it was a marketable product. And based on the, the Olympics, much like the 96 Olympic team that you see the documentary on now that propel the WNBA, you have to go back 20 years before that and look at how the 76 Olympic team propelled 
the WBL. So he he believed in it and he um, went out and found others that believed in it. And we started with eight teams and the league was off and running. So what was that process of, of, of you and many others being, you know, some of the premier original players? How was that? Was it a draft back then? Uh, how did that happen? Give, give our it, audience some idea. Well, it was just, it was, now we had just graduated. So we went and tried, myself and my teammate, Deborah Wadi Rosso, we came on as, and signed as free agents. But they absolutely, and of course, this name you will know, Adrian Mitchell Newell, um, and those that came the year after us, they were drafted. And the first year they were drafted. Uh, Molly Bolin became the first player to sign a contract. So, yes, we had a draft. Uh, it was held at the Essex House in New York City, uh, of which I just stayed there during a premiere recently, a very historic place for us. They held the draft. Uh, they had free agency camps. And so it was just like it is is done today. Maybe not in the magnitude, but yeah, it was off and running. It was the real deal. And so were, were, were there agents at that particular time or were there yes. women... Were you guys mostly on your own? How did that work? Well, I was on my own and we were on our own, but I know some of the players absolutely did have agents. And by the next year, some of the bigger names in the collegiate uh, arena and Myers Drysdale for one had an, uh, had uh, obtained an agent and Annie had been, had signed a contract with the Indiana Pacers to become the first woman to sign a contract with the NBA. She didn't make the team, but she did sign that contract to go and try and, and uh, participate in the trial trial tryouts there. So it took off with a bang. It took off in full force. One thing I will tell you also with our uh, team in particular, we had um, a general manager who had been involved with the Chicago White Sox and the Cubs. And his whole intent was to treat us like every other sports team, not treat us like a sidebar team, but to treat us like uh, the sports teams he'd been involved with. I think that contributed greatly to the success of the Chicago Hustle, which was the premier team in the league insofar as attendance, marketability, uh, we had WGN, Channel 9 covered our games. We had radio. We had beat writers. I think if every other team had been able to do what Chicago had done, we would have sustained. In fact, we just interviewed him recently, and he said there was no question had other teams been able to do what Chicago had. We might be playing in the WBL still today, not the WNBA. So, so Liz, uh, you are president of this organization uh, Legends of the Ball. Tell us about that. Well, we, Legends of the Ball, Inc. was founded by 12 former WBL players after our induction into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2018. It became glaringly obvious to us that little was known about our history. Um, this league is more than the three years of its existence we help propel and change the trajectory of the sport at every level, having coached at every level, having taken that Title IX education and gone into every profession imaginable. And yet we were looked at as a league that failed. Well, we like to say we were the league that propelled 
because after us, everything, we started the ball rolling. There were, there are eight recognized leagues after us, seven, I'm sorry, recognized leagues after us that didn't sustain, but you have to give every one of those organizations, every one of those leagues credit for attempting. You chip away, you chip away, you chip away at the mountain. And now we have the WNBA 26 years and running as the longest women's professional league in the United States. So, so legends of the ball, is, our, is, our, our mission is to promote the historic and social relevance of the WBL because it is it transcended sports. It changed the way people looked at women in professional sports. Uh, Billie Jean King was involved in it. She threw up a ceremonial ball toss. Uh, little boys wanted our autographs. It changed the social landscape. It changed the political landscape because Title IX had allowed, there would be no WBL, no NCAA without Title IX because the AIAW governed us the women first, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. So that's another area that, in which we became trailblazers. And then later the NCAA took over in 1982 and you have the governing body that you have today. So our mission is to promote the relevance of this league, the women of this league. So do you think that the current WNBA players understand, number one, the impact that the WBL had and the impact that Title IX had on making what they have today possible? Do you think those players understand that? I really don't, Lewis, and we, we get on them a lot about it. They don't know what they don't know, so it's our job, it's the historian's job, it's the media's job, it's the broadcaster's job, and it's their own uh, accountability to, to learn and know their history. They carry the uh, the NCAA, I'm sorry, the collegiate and the, the professional players carry our dreams inside them, but they don't know or speak our names. They continue to reach new heights. They continue to soar and they don't know who gave them wings. They continue to be uplifted and they don't know the source. Our job is to try to teach that. We were just as they were. And as far as Title IX goes, they look at Title IX, even the broadcasters, when we hear people talk about it, they talk about Title IX, the entity that it is, the legislation that it is. But they rarely put faces, names, accomplishments, seminal moments and events to it. If they would do that, the history would unfold at layer by layer. Because now you have names and faces and places and, and things that happened. And what does that lead you back to? It leads you back to the real live humans that, that implemented Title IX. And you don't just discuss it as Title IX did this. Title IX didn't do it. It opened the doors. Those women who stepped through those doors actually did, did the motion, took, took the actions to make Title IX effective. So here, here we are, Liz, 50 years after Title IX, and we still have conversations in this country uh, around pay compensation. And that conversation is still going on in sports, mm -hmm. especially in women's basketball. Yes. Uh, you know, we've had 
you know, NBA players speak out on it. We've had press speak out on it. Do you think it's ever going to change where women will be able to sort of get equal pay? We know it's about attendance. We know it's about TV rights. What do you think needs to happen for women to start getting a better payday in sports? You know, Lewis, I've often spoken spoken out about this and specifically in basketball because we can let me preface this with the soccer team that just landed that equal pay. Their argument is different because they outdraw the men. They're more they're more known than the men. I can't name one male soccer player. I'm sorry, but I can name several women. Um, They have won world championships and Olympics. Their argument is different. I think when you look at women's basketball and the professional level, I think they should demand more. Not necessarily the equal pay that the men get, but they should definitely demand more. They should get more. They shouldn't have to worry about the flights and the things that is a big uh, uh, concern, major concern. They should demand more. I don't know that you can look at it based on uh, the top female player making what the top male player makes, but she certainly deserves to earn more. And I think that that's how I look at it. Demand more, not necessarily the same as your male counterparts, because soccer is different. They have all this leverage and that's what won them that decision to get equal pay. They had the leverage. So what do you think that the women in the WNBA need to do or several outside organizations need to do to kind of help push that along? Well, they, this has been a group, and I, I think we've all been involved in social change. Even we were back in our time. But these young women today, I love that they take initiative and take their own, his, their own future in their own hands. Continue to speak out about it. Continue to demand more. Continue to man, demand better pay. And they have, gotten a, they have achieved a lot with the collective bargaining agreement. And they have a lot of things as far as maternity leave. You know, even in college, when we were losing girls to pregnancy, we, uh, we ended up getting that fifth year, that pregnancy rule, because there is a difference. And so I think they need to continue to amplify it, continue to gain the support. You have to gain the support of the powers that be. I love that their male counterparts support them. Uh, I think uh, the marketing side of it, we say women won't draw, the women can't draw. In the NCAA, the women have never been marketed as a sole entity. They've been marketed as a package deal. Market them on their own and watch them stand on their own. I think you got to dial back a little bit and start it at the collegiate level. And then I think it will roll over into the professional level. But I say to them, keep trying, keeping up, keep up the fight, get them marketed properly, get the businesses and the, fi- the behind them Um and it's, it's got to be, it can't be just solely on their shoulders to change their own situation. And, and, and Liz, for, for our listeners out there, what can they do to sort of be supportive of Legends of the Ball? How can they help there as you try to continue to educate people on uh, what you guys did, how that impacts what they see today? and how Title IX was involved in that. How can they support Legends of the Ball? Well, 
we have, first of all, you can follow us on all social media and you can see what we're doing. We're, we have, we give away scholarships. We went from two to six scholarships. That's our way of passing it on and paying it forward. Our historical relevance endowment, as well as our scholarship endowment, are two of the main areas that we pour funding into because it take, we have to take our message out to the people. It's not going to come to us. We are now in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame with a permanent display that shows just how much we've impacted, not just basketball, but sports and education moving forward. We have young student athletes that we are impacting and teaching this history to so that they can pass it on and pay it forward. You have to connect the dots, fill in the gaps, bridge it, bridge the gap and teach and these young women whose shoulders they stand on. Anytime you have hidden figures that are not known, how can you fully, truly know your history and how can you fully know how far you've come? We say, oh, the game has come a long way. A long way from where? From what? From what vantage point do you start that measurement? It didn't start with the WNBA. Women's professional basketball is 44 years old. I think everyone deserves to know the full history of women's professional basketball, which began with us. Knowing that history is going to not only empower you, it's going to inspire you. And then these young women will be able to see the young women that we were and, and connect with us on that level. So follow us, contribute. You can contribute to the scholarship endowment. You can contribute to the historical relevance endowment to keep us pushing forward and continuing our mission and our vision. And it's a, it's, a, it's a glorious history. It's an important history. And the only way we can tell it is to continue to take our message out. And that takes funding. Well, Liz, before I let you go, uh, we at Waymaker here believe that every successful person has had at least one Waymaker. Before I let you go, tell us who were some of your Waymakers. My first Waymaker, without hesitation, was my mother who told me I could do or be what I wanted to be in an era of segregation, you know, when little black girls didn't necessarily dream. The coaches in my life, every coach, the African-American teachers who prepared us before we integrated, every one of my coaches played an important role in my life. My teammates, uh, and uh, it, those have been the people who have made a way for me. But it first started at home. I'm from a, I'm a small town girl and the village truly did raise me. So I, I gained all of that from them. And my mother made a way for us. And so I, I just I show gratitude to them, to those who came before us. I think that's one of the differences. We show gratitude to those who paved the way for us, the women who paved the way even before the WBL. Well, Liz, we, we thank you for uh, sharing your journey and your story. Uh, we thank you for uh, Legends of the Ball. Uh, we thank you for the WBL. And we overall thank, I guess, the United States government for Title <laughs> Nine. For Title Nine. Yes, we do. Thank you, Lewis. It the whole landscape. It changed the landscape and changed the trajectory, without a doubt. Happy anniversary. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lewis. 
Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Liz Galloway McQuitter. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com and be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 